the theme for the evening talk is diversity and uh, unity. <coughs> Earlier today I was a little reminded of the value and importance of uh, diversity, both within the context of the small group and in one of the uh, inquiry periods. And sometimes we uh, carry with us a kind of uh, latent impression of what something is. And we imagine and in fact conclude that our impression is what it is. And many, many times in circumstances of life, our impression is not what it is, or it's an aspect of it. So, how many times in our life we turn our attention to a place, an environment, a form, a practice, a, an interest that we have? We get multiple impressions, in fact. They register, and upon the diversity of the impressions, we adopt or take up one of them, and it becomes the consistent one. And then we actually believe and imagine that the consistent impression we have about whatever is what it is. And the reminder I had of this was uh, in the small uh, group today, in a common and understandable one, where a person, as one has one's right and freedom to do, says, oh, vipassana, or, uh, insight meditation, is this. And then with it can come some useful, precise uh, interpretation or description uh, of it. But what is often the case is, it's drawn from somewhere. It's drawn from memory, it's drawn from a particular kind of association, and it could be, by other standards, other means Christopher, it could be regarded as a narrow view, a particular view, a particular interpretation. And in any tradition, as a uh, point here, that there is a huge diversity of ways of approaching meditation, of a ways of bringing our awareness to the immediacy of the moment, to seeing the conditioned nature of things, and therefore as a resource for insight. And if we think, oh, or have the impression, oh, we passenar is this, there are so many exceptions to what we imagine it is that it really defies the rule. And those of us who have, for our sins, moved frequently in and through meditation circles, insight meditation teachers, some with robes and shaved heads, and some more or less so, that it's hard 
to come to a conclusion, this is what it is. We might say, in the diversity of things, oh, you get an impression this way, I have an impression that way, this is how I experience things. All of that shows an awareness of diversity, but this is the impression that we have. This is the way we understand it to be. And fair enough. In the afternoon uh, inquiry uh, period, um, we uh, referred just uh, briefly, the gentleman in the corner, to what is depth? What is it to experience depth in life? And the same thing can arise again. We sometimes have an imagine, imagine depth in a particular way, such a deep place in a particular way. But, as the teachings and as the Buddha said uh, with frequency, mind is vast, it's diverse, it's able to accommodate all sorts of polar opposites, it can be shallow and deep and gross and subtle, the sheer diversity of it. And just as that diversity applies in the upper levels, it also and does apply in the deeper levels uh, as well. And so, we might say, Dharma teachings includes as a feature of it, vipassana. It includes as a feature of it, meditation to enable us to face clearly, unambiguously, our existence and see just what it is. And that's the thrust and the purpose with the meditation, with the insight meditation, to see things clearly and directly, because that's a human duty in a way, a human responsibility there. Just uh, before uh, Shada left to come from uh, the US, uh, she was at uh, teaching a week at uh, Gaia House, and uh, Sharon uh, Salzberg, the co-founder of uh, IMS in Barrie, Western Massachusetts, had uh, flown to uh, England to Guy House and to teach with uh, Shada a week-long retreat. And as a number of you will know, the value which is being recognized and acknowledged in the community for the importance of heart, the place of the heart. And special and particular retreats are taking place to warm, nourish, and uh, uh, open the heart. Teachings taking place to, to, for jhanas, for the deep absorptions of joy and happiness and deep peace and equanimity of, of being. Teachings are taking place within the community too, to look at what it, what it means to have an open and real expansive awareness and not taking up uh, anything at all, teachings of group retreats and solitude. And all of this is reflecting a diversity. It would be rather a foolish person who thinks these days, oh, it's just um, um, a navel-gazing club of sitting and watching one's uh, breath. It is not. It's much more diverse in both its in-reach as well as its outreach expressions of that, all part of Dharma teachings of which Vipassana is one of them.
or part of Dharma teachings and practices taking place in which vipassana is a feature of that diversity. Not the center, not the epicenter, not the hub. It's a feature of, of that. So it's important that we don't, in our own awareness of things, in our own observation of things, in anything that we have a connection with in life, don't start shrinking the self around and becoming small-minded in that. Because if we shrink the self around anything, anyone, how can one go from awakening with a small, shrunken self, which has grasped hold of something, can be incredibly enthusiastically for, and then the mind does its turn around and be incredibly enthusiastically against. Both with incredible conviction in either direction. And we do this in all manner of things in life, frequently. Grab hold of it and think it's the, as we say in English, and we have this saying, the cat's whiskers, meaning it's the, the and um, I can't put that into American, I'm sorry. And then there's a reaction which uh, uh, can come, and it's the whole syndrome of the mind, incredibly for, incredibly against. Not seeing diversity. Not seeing it when it's right before our eyes and right before our ears in day-to-day -day life. All of that means that what is the key to this diversity, to this sense and experience of it? It is an awareness which isn't shrunken down by the grasping and the particularizing of the self. An awareness which isn't shrunken through the grasping and the particularizing of the self. In the course of the uh, day uh, which go, goes on, and in the, the flow of the day here, the forms of experiences which can um, and do take place can vary, and the variation of them can show itself in the feelings and thoughts of what we deem to be pleasant, and what we deem to be unpleasant, and what's going on in between. So you're going through the day, sitting and walking, standing and eating, sleeping and listening, or whatever, the whole world of multiple impressions, multiple impressions impacting on the sense doors, coming through ourselves, and in all that multiplicity of things, as we were speaking uh, earlier on, we select and begin to build up. Something is pulled out, built up, and begins to make much of, and in the making much of, the self arises with it. And if we just stop for a moment or two and look at our day, countless, and literally countless number of impressions that have run through our eyes and our ears, run through our mind, come up through our body, come up through memory, come up through ideas and things, 
so many of them and out of that we've made a selection of that diversity and we have said essentially some of them are mattering to me more than the others all of that's natural human way of living in this world but in the natural arising of some things mattering uh, more than others the very fact that it's mattering more to us brings in the relationship the relationship starts when it begins to matter we say ad nauseum watch your breath we're saying it matters we're saying be aware of your body experiences we're saying it matters we're saying really uh, listen to uh, the, the sound we're saying it, it, it matters you by this point in the uh, evening talk now 10 to 15 minutes old some of you will be, will be saying may have already said well actually it doesn't matter the living proof of it is that you're half asleep or thinking about what's for breakfast or, or whatever it might be so we say oh, look, breathing matters because we breathe body life matters because we feel the sensations of bodily life we listen we say it matters so from outside of yourself you get encouragement attend to the ordinary attend to the everyday in that attending to things as they say stand out important if you can uh, follow this it may be already too late in the day but we'll try even what stands out requires so important this requires the support of everything else everything so something stands out in the day you've seen some others and some comparing and judging and envy and jealousy has gone on you've uh, uh, had a meeting and it didn't go very well you're supposed to go to a small group and you completely spaced out and now you think you've lost your chance for enlightenment <laughs> or whatever whatever it it, it um, um, might be someone in the hall is sitting in the hall every five minutes they're up in the hall they're outside they're back they're in they're out one was think one was on an escalator and all this is irritating oneself because you're sitting near the person or whatever it might be so something stands out there I, I, I seems like I didn't choose the most pleasant things for standing out <laughs> exactly there are two pleasant things that can stand out as well um, we've just left the English climate and we're back in California it's, it's the pleasantness has finally uh, come back or whatever so something stands out <coughs> life things stand out in life it's natural enough in that standing out partly it's impressed upon us the mind might be wandering hugely right in this very very moment and it's the 23rd time you've looked at your watch and I go <coughs> probability you're back it stands out who in the room had any choice who in the room could say well actually I chose not to hear that bell 
not a chance. It stands out. Not through voluntary invitation. It stands out. In order for it to stand out, it required what? It required ears for a kickoff. It required this making contact with this. It required the intention and the energy running down this guy's arm and doing uh, his thing or whatever. It stands out because everything cooperates, everything's going on, supports, and it stands out. It's called life. It's called life. It's called diversity of life. We foolishly forget the diversity which makes something possible. And we grab monstrously, foolishly, naively, and ultimately painfully onto what stands out at the expense of an awareness which can't see, as the Buddha said, ad nauseum till he was sick to death of saying it, it dependently arises. And if we can just have enough awareness, just a little expanse, a little space, a little clear acknowledgement, things forming and standing out in relationship to. Maybe grasping will go down as a result. Clinging will go down as a result. Therefore, fear will go down as a result. Just enough space around what stands out to know it dependently arises. Just enough space in life. Enough inner space. Enough awareness. Enough acknowledgement of. What do you mean dependently Make a sound without something to make it sound. Boom! This, for the sound to come, it requires this, it required that, and it required Joe Christopher jump in and do it. Doesn't, it doesn't arise out of itself. You make a sound. <laughs> <laughs> Not a chance. It can't come out of itself. But you require your hearing it too? Or you it requires, yes, it requires the, the deaf but not bothered. It requires the hearing <laughs> as well. It's dependently arising, the whole world arising, really. It's just, you know, I take your point, it's a serious question. And in that, in the moment, to repeat myself, it comes out of existence. And we become conscious of it. And the same may come out again, and again, and again, and again. The tendency of human beings is that in what repeats itself, the eye keeps getting stimulated by it, painfully or pleasurably, and we begin to take a hold of it. We take it, as it were, out of existence, we make an impression of it, and we begin to hold the impression. And the impression already could be there inside the mind. The thought could arise, if that guy Titmus hits that bell, once more I'm going to clobber him. The impression has arisen, it stayed, one's identified with it, one's held on to it, and one is just waiting for me to do it again before one hits the roof or go and has diarrhea. 
And we live in this way because we hold and take up, identify with, grasp hold of, and all of that. We can't see it for what it is. We can't see it for its dependently arising conditions. Teachings, vipassana, meditation, the turning attention to the objects to learn to see clearly. Clearly. When I was in the uh, um, monastery, um, again, one has various uh, recollections and um, uh, um, um, memories. I think if I remember rightly, Andrew and I, didn't we, we traveled down together, didn't we? Yeah, I remember. So, uh, uh, Andrew and I, this must have been in the uh, late uh, 80s, were uh, in uh, 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 Thailand. He, at the time when he was a uh, Buddhist monk, was in staying in the, what, Suan Mok, means the monastery of the uh, Garden of Liberation, where uh, teacher was, Ajahn uh, Buddhadasa, Buddhadasa means servant of the Buddha, and from there in the Chaya, about 13 hours south of on the train from um, Bangkok, and then we made, uh, I think it was the bus journey, did we go on the bus? Yeah, we went on the bus journey for about another four or five hours south to Nakhon Si Tamarat, where the monastery was, where I spent three or four years. Nakhon Si Tamarat, rather a nice name, it means the city of the kings of Dharma. Nakhon Sri Dharma Raj. Nakhon Si Tamarat. And we went to see my old uh, uh, teachers and uh, um, monastery uh, while I was uh, while I spent my years during the early seventies. And one, as I say, impressions and recollections and um, mem memories come. And sometimes, as we know, great teachings take place in silence and can register in ways which are sweet and uh, breathtaking. And so just as I was speaking to you just uh, now, something which sticks in my mind, and I've uh, referred to it uh, 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 other times, of sitting in the Dharma Hall when Ajahn Dhammadro was uh, giving the evening uh, talk. And one evening he came in and sat down, maybe 70, 100 monks, more nuns and uh, novices and lay people lending an ear on the teachings. And he just moved his hand. He was very fond of his hand moving moment to moment, Andrew as well, and moving his hand through the air, uh, various ways. And he would just do this in front of uh, the Sangha, uh, very slowly, mindful, moment to moment, to remind us of moment to moment awareness and of the pulse and the vibration of life before thought comes in and starts interpreting it all. Just a bare experience of the hand moving through the air. And then he commented, in the single movement of the hand through the air, it affects and influences everything else, right to the furthest reaches of the universe. That in one event taking place, everything else shifts a little bit. Of course, the eyes of the observers in the Dharma Hall is a, are, are affected, the sensations are affected, the feelings are affected, 
etc., etc. One small thing in life where there's that subtlety of the sheer diversity that one little thing one see, senses the extraordinariness of how all of life is shifting, moving, interfacing, interconnecting through one tiny little event. And sometimes, uh, from time to time, the thought uh, has arisen. I re remember when flying on a plane, similar situation happened with Shara and I a few days ago, the uh, full plane just changing a seat. And one person says, oh. well, we ask you, could we sit here, sit together, could, would you mind changing a seat? And the thought arose, just by changing a seat and moving from one thing to another, this has changed the person's life and our life forevermore. One little gesture changes things. The psyche, the sensations, the vibrations, the thought, the feeling, and, has it, and all of that has its flows and interflows in numerous ways. Sometimes we are sitting in the diversity of things, utterly still, utterly impeccably still. Not, not, no intentional movement whatsoever. And we just move our little finger in the meditation and inwardly arises the recognition that in the moment of moving just a little finger, it's been disturbing. We've disturbed the meditation. We've disturbed the stillness. We've disturbed the silence. We've disturbed, as the Buddhists have said for many centuries, we've disturbed the world of 10,000 things. All of that in this extraordinary field of diversity. And that's why there is so much encouragement towards the silence and the stillness of, of being which generates and brings out of us a receptivity. A receptivity that it's extraordinary just to move one's little finger and know it makes a difference. Just to be still and know it has its influence. Just to move and to know the wave of the movement has its ripples and its consequences. If we're subtle, really subtle in our meditations, the consciousness gets a different kind of sense, which in its grossness and in our indulgences and in our busyness and our addictiveness, in our hurrying and hither and thither, somehow we lose sense of something. And this we want to recover and rediscover or whatever. For that, sometimes it needs, of course, as I said, dependently arising, it needs cooperation. It needs a lot of cooperation, as Shada mentioned to you the other e evening, about as much as possible to really be here within five minutes of the sitting uh, period, get underway. Not always possible, of course, with the small groups, one-to-ones, for the three of us, but as much as possible. It requires your cooperation to stay in the hall when you are here out of awareness and love and connection with others, not to disturb them through uh, departure. It requires your cooperation in the, in the room, not to read. If one knows and senses the other person doesn't want a light on in there, 
doesn't want books being read and one knows that out of awareness and compassion and respect for the other person, one doesn't. And if one is keeping a diary or a journal and the other person wishes to go to bed, then one goes outside, plenty of lights on outside the bedroom and, and does it quietly and inconspicuously there because one doesn't wish to disturb the night and the silence and the stillness of the other person with whom you're sharing a room. All of this shows an avenue of mindfulness and respect for understanding how in the world of dependently arising things, when there's some insensitivity in it or forgetfulness or I want to do what I want regardless, that one actually has uh, uh, an unsatisfactory and an unnecessary impact on, on another person or persons. And it takes, it's a practice. Not easy. You know, we're human after all, but it's a practice to be aware of the outflow of dependently arising and in the dependently arising how easily we can grab onto it. And that's grabbing produces the self. The grabbing generates the self, the I, the me, the my, the agitation, the fear, and so forth. And the teachings are very simple. Don't grab. Don't cling. Don't hold on. It's dependently arising. We look, we look at ourselves and we say, Gosh, this is, here we are in this world, in this existence. Everything for its appearance requires the support of everything else. That there's no exception to it. <laughs> Nowhere. And sometimes we take it all for granted, sometimes we never even hardly contemplate these things because we're so wrapped up in the self. And so, in that, as has been said and pointed out to you, we hear the teachings, directly or indirectly, about the importance of not-self. Not no-self, not having rabid views about things, but not-self. And sometimes, in the reaction of hearing about not-self, it can sound cold, and detached, and aloof, and alienated, or whatever. And that's never been the intention in the teachings for withdrawal from the world. It's just that in the awareness of not-self, not holding, not clinging, not I, not me, not my, in that awareness of not-self, something begins to open up and open out, which is infinitely better than living in the self. Trapped in I and trapped in my and trapped in, in, in self is a miserable way of existence. It's a tragic way of, of living. And the not-self teaching is the beautiful way because it opens up awareness and expansiveness far beyond the little petty machinations of I day in and day out with such boring regularity. 
So the not-self, it brings with it awareness, expansiveness, sensitivity, connectedness, understanding of dependent uh, arising, the seeing of the nature of things, liberation, enlightenment, the opening of the heart. My God, what more do you want? (laughs) And one is prepared to sacrifice all of that for oh me, oh my, oh self, oh, 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 pathetic. Even I have to laugh, otherwise I'll weep. (laughs) So, we take notice of the formations of it, take notice of the appearance uh, of it, as we're speaking to you, day in and, and day out. And sometimes there is a sense, not always uh, easy and not always clear, but there is, there is a sense that the awareness factor is actually accommodating all of myself. That the awareness element is revealing myself. It is bigger than my story, insofar it, is, it allows communicating about it. It allows a discussion about it, it allows a knowing of it, it allows a description of it, it allows an experience of it. So there's something quite extraordinary that this capacity that we have as human beings, as expressions of humanity, that the awareness can come and can remain, uh, make something very, very clear. Even in the pits of confusion, when one is thoroughly confused. Quite often, we can still say to self or to another, I'm incredibly confused. And follow it up immediately with saying, and actually I'm incredibly clear about it, just how confused I am. So it's not as though confusion itself can actually destroy the awareness. We can know very well how much confusion is present. The awareness we can make that, can be as clear about that, as clear about joy, love, contentment, peace, equanimity and dependent arising. Something extraordinary this capacity of us as human beings to shed light on, to be extraordinarily aware of, and somewhere it tends to show a certain context of our situation. I had a meeting with a person very recently. She said to me, mystified uh, a very profound and a deep experience some uh, uh, years ago. I haven't been able to explain it either to myself or to anyone uh, else. And in this incredibly uh, deep experience which I had, I just had a sense of how, in, uh, in my experience, how infinite everything was, how infinite the space was. And I don't quite know what happened uh, to me, but there was such a sudden 
shake-up inside of me, that all my conceptions and all my kind of ways of looking and how I thought the world really was, suddenly got really shook up and and it really hit me. It wasn't like that. It isn't like that. It isn't like this. And she said, now I'm in the situation of uh, terminal illness. I don't know how much longer I have uh, left uh, in this world. And I'm still trying to understand what had happened to me some uh, years ago. His stories, Shadra and I, in various ways, here with uh, regularity, if I may say, in various parts of the world. My question was not trying to understand the experience which happened to her, because sometimes with experiences we can't put them conveniently into cause and effect. We don't know how it happened to us or what happened. We, we just it seems like rather gross to try to make our mind understand how something was or why it happened why she had this experience of incredible space and everything as it were rested easily in it my question was not so much the past nor with regard to future nor with regard to infinite space but in the outcome of such an experience Right now, in her life, does she have space around the event between head and toes? Because she is exceptionally aware of a terminal uh, illness with an uncertain future, and if that experience which occurred some years ago ran as deep, then it has to run so deep that the residue of it, the liberating residue of it, needs to be thoroughly present, which essentially means space around the whole event of her existence, because of that acute awareness of finiteness of this. And therefore, the, the uh, indicator of what's valid in terms of profound, deep, extraordinary experiences which happen, or if they don't happen, either way, nevertheless, the important criteria for us is how are we in relationship to what is? Because that's what we have, that's what is, that's what we deal with, that's what we live with from one day to the next. And I said, sometimes, not because of emotion, not because of thought, not because of fear. The very organism itself, having listened to many stories, lives, and of course lived in the monastery with monks and nuns dying, and have uh, been with them and lied down with the monks as they were dying in the last minutes and hours. The body itself, the organism itself, will exude very unpleasant sensations. It's like the body consciousness knows its finiteness and therefore easily it generates unpleasant sensations coming out of, the, out of the body there. But it doesn't have to be grasped onto. 
It doesn't have to be called or thought of as fear or terror. And I said, if there is that space which you spoke of, may not be so dramatic as what you knew several years ago, but just enough to have space around the body, just enough to have space, just to know unpleasant sensations and feelings rise, and they rise for one thing only, to fall. They come for one reason only, to go. Can we just have enough steadiness for all of that? Because it might well be that's what we will face, and some are facing already day in and day out. And so our practice is not only a way of living and being and accommodating the extraordinariness of all of this diversity, the unity that holds all of this together as well, but also just to remind us as well that life has its faces of the pleasant and the unpleasant, the joyful and the challenging and the threatening. Can we just have enough accommodation of it? To accommodate it all. And awareness is the key for that accommodation and the very nature of that awareness, if understood thoroughly, is extraordinarily enlightening and simultaneously liberating. And the, the, the Buddha and successive generations for two and a half thousand years and the previous Buddhas that the Buddha referred to have been beautifully uh, consistent with this message about the nature of awareness as simultaneously enlightening and liberating utterly intimate with the way things are. And all of that can be discovered and seen and realized and understood clearly in this circumstance. That's why we're here. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings live a free and joyful life. Let's have a couple of uh, quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.